the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Our Lady of Grace, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's see if you can get more electric light. Does it turn on? Oh, good. Okay. Um, well, sisters, uh, welcome, and welcome to the Dominican House of Studies. And uh, it's, of course, a great privilege for us to have you here. And we're, um, I'm very happy to be teaching this seminar and hope that will be helpful. Um, I have a packet that I gave to Sister uh, Mary Ann that has, uh, well, a virtually an exhaustible amount of work you could do on this subject and probably uh, sort of in degrees has appropriate amounts. Well, I try to put readings in it for you for the coming year that I thought are personally interesting so that it would be more fun to read them uh, on controversial and interesting topics. So I, the way I think about this week is to sort of introduce some of the themes or theological questions about studying the person of Jesus Christ that will allow you to then go on and, and do some of this research uh, during the course of the next six months or so. Today I'm going to talk uh, mostly about the New Testament and the way I lecture, okay, so I, I will lecture, but um, my understanding is if you have a question, you just raise your hand and I will take the question. Or sometimes I say, let me just get to the next point and then I'll come back to you. Okay, but you must feel free to raise your hand. I mean, I'm, I, well, the Dominican brothers are not very good about this, but I, I like questions in class and uh, we'll have more discussion. We'll try to figure out a way. I'm, I have the typical disease of speaking too much, but we'll see this afternoon. I'll try to have the uh, uh, integrate, you know, conversation in the seminar. So today I crammed all the methodological questions into one lecture. So they're the less important issues. There's a famous theologian in the 20th century, Karl Barth, who said that most theologians, when it comes to theology, are like swimmers on the shore practicing their strokes. They're thinking about methodology of how you do theology, and they never actually get into the subject matter and get into the water and swim. And so I think it's very important we talk about the mystery of the life of Jesus. And uh, we're going to do a lot of that. But the first, we're going to talk about uh, you know, an hour of methodological questions. And really this hour is mostly about what is the historical critical method going to do for us in theology? The historical critical method, the historical critical study of the, the Jesus of Nazareth in his historical context. Is that useless? Is it useful? Is it a waste of time? I gave you uh, Witherington to read, who's he's a Methodist, evangelical. And he, I mean, the reason I give you this is because this is a very, uh, this is a pretty decent attempt to give a, a, a sort of a, robust account of Jesus in his historical context as a first century Jew that's pretty compatible with the New Testament account of Jesus and with the Catholic faith. Um, although that's not Witherton's primary, I mean he probably believes in the Nicene Creed and Chalcedon. Um, in that sense he's uh, compatible with Catholicism. Um, and this is an ambitious attempt. The, the book I've given you to read 
uh, um, uh, in the in the program that goes on. I forget the name of the fellow. Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson, the real Jesus, is a Catholic, a rather liberal Catholic, but on Jesus issues, he's he's pretty he's okay. He has a much more skeptical, uh, reticent view of using historical critical method. I mean, he thinks we can't really know very much about the historical Jesus just by historical criteria alone. We've got to depend on the New Testament accounts. This guy thinks you can get behind the text, as it were, back into who the historical Jesus was. So it's good to com- contrast the two. They're both, they both believe in Christ. They believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. They believe in the divinity of Christ. They have two different approaches to historical su- study of Christ. Well, okay, let's start with some basics. Christology is a science. It's not a hard science. It's not a human science, like sociology... It's a theological science. It's a science that seeks understanding based on first principles. Who is Jesus Christ? What is his mystery? What does it reveal? The knowledge given uh, to us in Christ, the knowledge of God revealed in Christ, is not accessible to unaided human reason. What we know of Jesus Christ is given to us through revelation, and it is a mystery. So it's a science based not on immediate natural evidence, the way you could go out and study biology, it's a science based on divine revelation, inaccessible to ordinary human speculation. It's in part deeply intelligible, that's to say it's luminous, it's illuminating, Christ is luminous and illuminating. But it's also partly deeply obscure, like the faith the light and the obscurity of faith. So the luminous and obscure quality of Christ and of His mystery and of theology of Christ. The Christological study of the mystery of God. It's a search for intelligibility. We seek in Christology to try to understand theologically in faith the mystery of the Lord. And at the same time, it's not simply speculative or theoretical. It's also contemplative and practical. We can't entirely possess the reality we're studying. We have to rather grow closer to Him, seek to understand Him, contemplate Him with reverence and pondering, and to live practically in discipleship to Him to understand Him better. St. Paul speaks about the mystery of Christ. When we talk about mystery or mysteries, we do not want to imply that there's an absence of intelligibility. As if, you know, here is a mystery, leave your mind at the door. But rather the opposite, a density of intelligibility. But that's something, a presence of intelligibility that's uncircumscribable. Uncircumscribed, meaning it's, there's something incomprehensible. Or, sorry, um, uh, that can't be comprehended in the sense of enclosed within its totality. We're growing relative to something we can't master intellectually. But it's so dense. You know, it's like the light of the sun is so, it's disproportionate to the eye. The eye has to, uh, can't take the intensity of the light. And, at the same time, it's a mystery that is gradually understood. So we enter into a deeper configuration intellectually, whatever else happens to us in religious life and Christian life, configuration of Christ and the mystery of his, of his cross, but also a progressive configuration of our mind to His mystery through sacred study. 
The mystery or the figure of Christ is given to us to consider through revelation. We know Christ principally through the medium of sacred scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. How do we know objects of faith? Through scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. We have no access, no direct access to chemically pure Jesus Christ. Right? We don't get back behind scripture, tradition, and the magisterium and get the hard element of what Christ was prior to the way he was reported to us in the tradition. I mean, that's basically in a way what scripture is, the earliest tradition, apostolic tradition and teaching you can't get back behind it or can you well you can't get it you, can't, you might be able to infer what probably happened X, Y, and Z which is what the historians try to do but you don't have direct access or let's put it this way you have direct access to Jesus Christ but the only place you have it is through the biblical witnesses I mean, Christ speaks to us, or we know who He is, but we know Him through the biblical witnesses. And, our mind requires elevation. It's outside the natural powers, as I already mentioned, just to know Christ without revelation. But it needs internal elevation through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of faith, hope and love, but then the gifts of the Holy Spirit. To discern the ongoing presence of Christ, particularly in the church, particularly in the sacramental economy. We're going to study the mystery of Jesus differently whether or not we frequently attend the Eucharistic Adoration, for example, because there you have Christ present in a sacramental mode. So that's going to change the way you read <coughs> Scripture. It's just going to change the way you understand the mystery of God. And this is the necessary context for our consideration of the mystery of Christ. I mean, we would say as Catholics, and we are obliged to say, and it's a certitude of the theological science, that God intended the scriptures to be read in the context of the liturgy in the church and Eucharistic devotion. Right? I mean, if you take it outside that context, then you're, you're, you're in some ways rupturing the organic unity of what the Holy Spirit wanted to do when he instituted the church and inspired the scriptures. Yes? I don't understand but you know like in the liturgies the liturgy of the time liturgy of the because we don't, we don't like exhaust the scripture yep. so do we is it if we say that God intends us to understand the scripture yeah well, I don't mean that we should only read the scriptures in the in the in the liturgy, uh, and of course, our study of the scriptures should be uh, be an important. I mean, it's important to study scriptures outside of it, but the living contact with the Word of God in the liturgy, it's not a substitute for lectio divina or for historical study of the Bible, but. Um, it's, it's an appropriate, it's a necessary appropriate context in which to understand what it means to have contact with Christ through the Word of God. Because we have a different kind of quality of contact with Christ through the Eucharistic uh, sacrifice and through Eucharistic adoration. That's my, I'm just, it's just a claim about method because people separate the two. Um, okay. Let's move now to uses of the... So that was a sort of strong emphasis there just at the beginning about the fact that we come to know Christ through the tradition, through scripture, through divine revelation. It's a gift of faith. We encounter Christ alive in the mystery of the Mass, in the liturgy. And this is the whole ecclesial context of discipleship of Christ, of the contemplative life, which I think is just the norm in which every Catholic Christian is invited to... A, a, 
approach the mystery of Jesus and to understand him scientifically, as to say, to study him theologically. Now, that having been said, is there or what kind of use is there of the historical critical method within faith? What does it mean to study Jesus as a historical figure, given all that first part? Okay, well, history studies what is historically likely to have occurred. Right? His, a historian deals in probabilities. You weren't there when Julius Caesar was stabbed by Brutus. You believe it happened. It's probable. Highly probable. Maybe Neil Armstrong went to the moon. Maybe it was all filmed in uh, a warehouse in Arkansas. Right? And they made a little moon buggy and they drove it around in Arkansas and they filmed it so that the Russians would be intimidated, so they would think our space program was superior. Right? I mean, you don't have these paranoid problems. That's only the friars have that, the deep paranoia. Right? I mean, right, okay. But I'm just, uh, by, by means of an absurd uh, example, well, maybe not so absurd. Anyway, uh, no, I believe in the, uh, I believe they went to the moon. I don't know what they thought they were doing there, but anyway. Um, that's more, more my view of the world, is they do have these phenomenal technological successes in our culture that, that lead you nowhere. So anyway, or places you shouldn't be. Anyway, so, um, history deals in probabilities, and it tries to understand why events occurred, therefore it looks for causes, and to find explanations for how situations, events, and ideas unfolded, their interplay. Why? Well, history deals with the significance of human culture at large. I mean, people aren't really as interested in, say, the history of animal psychology, or you know, they have the, there's already a choice of what you study in history. You study human civilization because you are interested in the values of human culture and human existence. You're trying to find significance in the way human culture unfolds. Now, since Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure, and since there are documents, the New Testament documents, that convey information about him, or which purport to, then to some extent Jesus can rightly be a subject of historical study independently of the mystery of faith as conveyed through the vehicle of the church and scripture. I mean, you can have Jewish historians who study who Jesus Nazareth was, you can have atheists who do so, right? And there's a famous scholar, priest at Notre Dame called John Meyer, who's written rigorous, that this is really, for him, this is his own project, is, I think, Jesus, a marginal Jew. He's now on the fourth volume of a long series of books. I'm trying to look at what would you say about Jesus if you tried to approach him with um, religiously uh, value-free uh, historical approach. So his, his classic example, everybody quotes, is you take a Jew, an atheist, a Protestant, a Catholic, and you put them in the basement of Harvard Library, and you let them study the mystery of Jesus. And, and you can only write about what they all agree on. I think that's a terrible way to, to use historical critical. But it's interesting. He, has, he, he wants to say, you know, we need to try to focus on what you can get uh, consensus on. There's other ways to use the method, like Witherington, who's trying to argue in view of Christian um, claims about Jesus, that the Christian claims in the New Testament are the most historically plausible claims. So already when you start to say, how are we going to use historical study of Jesus in this context? There are different ways you can use it. So, I mean, what I'm alluding to there and, and just mentioning that is that history also always deals with moral, metaphysical, and religious values. There are historians who claim I'm just being 
chemically pure historian. I'm just trying to find the facts. But it's really, and it's true, you can find some facts that everyone agrees on. Julius Caesar was probably born such and such date, and you know he lived. We know he was alive at this time because of X, Y, and Z. But generally speaking, when you start to circumscribe, just the choice of what you want to focus on, usually already shows values. Why are you interested in Julius Caesar rather than? You know, the guy who was his butler. Um, and behind it, there's latent metaphysical and religious presuppositions. There's philosophical approaches that are implicit. So the guy who's studying the historical resurrection of Jesus, who doesn't believe miracles are possible, versus the one who thinks they're possible but doesn't know if any have ever happened, versus the one who believes that they do happen but they all, they're all recorded in the Koran, versus the one who thinks that they do happen and, and that Christianity is true, or at least reasonable, reasonably likely, or something like that. You see, you've got different presuppositions that are, are working on the historian. And a lot of them don't, uh, honestly, a lot of them don't admit that as readily as we would like. I mean, partly because it put them out of a job. But, I mean, their claims to historical objectivity sometimes in tension with their own deepest uh, existential and philosophical presuppositions. Or at least there could be tension between those two that needs to be admitted. Presuppositions or convictions on these other planes necessarily enter into an interpretation of what is reasonable as regards to the New Testament on any number of fundamental questions regarding the historical identity of Christ. I mean, how reasonable is it that a man in history would have claimed to be God? How reasonable is it in history that a man would have risen from the dead? You see, I mean, how do you answer that question? Is it reasonable that a man in, in, through, in, in someone in history would have risen from the dead? Well, that really depends on what your concept of his of reasonable is. Do you believe in God? Do you believe God could raise the dead? Do you think there's any reason God would have invested in ra raising the dead? Would it serve any function for us? I mean, those are real good questions. But the way you answer them and the convictions you already have about them will affect how you approach. Or do you think, you know, are you a searcher? You know, maybe maybe God exists. Maybe there's meaning to human existence. I'm looking out on the horizon of humanity, and I'm trying to find answers. The New Testament might be an answer, or you know, I'm pretty sure that that's all a big fraud, and we need to find the evidence to prove it. Or I need to get tenure, and I'm really interested in why the Christians faced East, and therefore I'm going to write a thesis about early Christian worship, and not worry about whether miracles ever happened. You know, I'm just saying existential dispositions of people are always at play. And the more you get to know scholars who work in historical Jesus studies, the more you realize that there's all kinds of deep existential ambiguity, I mean, commitments or non-commitments working under the surface. And they don't talk about them in the seminar room. They just get together and they talk about what Greek, how you decline Greek verbs. <laughs> Those are the kind of things you can only say here because I don't have to worry about getting tenure. Okay, um... Alright, meanwhile, the Catholic Church maintains there is no fundamental opposition between, not in principle, there need not be an opposition between a very ambitious, dense, historical, textual, critical study of the figure of Jesus in his historical context, as well as study of the early Christian movement, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the theological affirmations of faith. This is the teaching of De Verbum, the document on divine revelation, Vatican II. It's certainly compatible to believe deeply in the mystery of Jesus Christ as vehicled through the church, divine revelation, scripture, tradition, the magisterium, as 
present in liturgy and to study Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth in his original historical context and how the early Christian movement emerged. To attempt to study reasonably the probabilities of how this unfolded. Um, however, the two approaches are not... I mean, the two... Th- These two ways of approaching Christ are certainly not synonymous. Uh, We can approach Christ through the medium of faith with the intellectual insight and judgment of belief. In historical dependence upon early Christian beliefs and doctrines as witnessed to in the New Testament. The New Testament provides the fundamental prism for us. The, The figure of Christ is presented to us in the New Testament. And he emerges there as a historical figure. Obviously, the New Testament claims Jesus, this Jesus, in the New Testament, is a historical figure. That's part of the claim of faith. Right? We believe he was historical. Or that he, that things that, that are reported of him that he said and did happened. And in uh, first believing that, we then study his mystery, understand it, contemplate it, grow to understand him. But then there's also the principles of probabilistic historical reasoning where we would consider Jesus Nazareth Nazareth as, um, well, I mean, obviously, even on the most strict, even on the most strict um, delineation of the problem theologically, you've got the historical Jesus, and then you've got, you know, the letters of Paul, and then you've got the Gospels, you know, well, let's say maybe, you know, Mark, and then Matthew and Luke, and then... John out here and you've got all kinds of epistles being written meanwhile you know and all this is happening you know this is 20 years this is maybe 50 years after you know and some of it maybe 60 years after if you take John maybe right so it's all schematic but in any case even if everything in Mark Matthew Luke and John happened pretty much as they say and to take the most you know strictest interpretation of that it's still uh only a selection of what actually uh, happened and it's being presented later to Gentiles in the larger Greco-Roman Mediterranean world and so you're no longer in the historical context of the Jews living in what we call Second Temple Judaism time of Jesus so um, and plus we can see because of the differentiations in the way they report that there was some differences in the traditions you know the traditions get altered a little bit so you've got the problem of trying to think about what the historical Jesus, even if you take everything in Mark as he said all of it that way, what what are some of the, the sort of resonances or tones of what that meant when he said it around Jews in his own context? What are some of the resonances of what it, the way it's reported by Mark in a Gentile context to speak to people who are converting to Christianity? You know, that, that sort of thing. So, you've got a historical problem built into the very fabric of Revelation, or a historical question. And so you can try through probabilistic historical reasoning to consider Jesus Nazareth within the context of his own culture at the original time of his words and deeds. And you can try, in an apologetic way, to say, well, you know, let's take, a, take up a dialogue with the skeptic. There's people who believe the church made all this up. Or the church made some of this up. The early church, the earliest apostles, you know, the New Testament. So, well, can we argue with them by certain criteria that there are certain historical words and deeds in the Gospels? In other words, some things Jesus said 
probabilistically had to have happened. It's historically rather certain or very likely that he said or did these kinds of things because otherwise we wouldn't be able to explain how early Christianity came to be, why Jesus was controversial. And on the, and we can kind of make up a kind of... Um, we can establish a probable set of um, unique features of Jesus in his historical context that explain why he was so controversial, uh, how he was, why he was understood the way he was understood by his opponents and his disciples, how early Christianity arose. Now these are probable reconstructions that employ uh, criteria to depict a likely life of Jesus. That explains the historical origins of the movement that grew up around him. And I'll just take a brief example. The principle of embarrassment, which is the one that became very big in the so-called second quest for the historical Jesus in the 1970s. The principle of embarrassment is this. Um, the New Testament is written by disciples of Jesus who have every reason or interest to see him exalted as a figure or a person of, of importance. And therefore, would be un- they would be unlikely to report things which would... Uh, embarrass their cause or their movement. Now, we know from Acts of the Apostles that in the second, gen- that in the generation after uh, the historical Jesus, uh, John the Baptist had disciples who claimed a rivalry with Christians and claimed to follow John the Baptist rather than John uh, and Jesus. You see the people in Acts saying, "Well, we received the baptism of John the Baptist," and they have to be convinced that, well, that's not enough. And we know there was some rivalry from historical sources. Well. So why are all four Gospels, if, you, if they're written at a time when there's still disciples of John the Baptist around who have not, as it were, submitted to Christianity or become early Christians, you know, why are they all four Gospels reporting that John the Baptist baptized Jesus, seemingly placing John the Baptist in a, in a symbolic, ritual status of uh, greater importance or superiority? Right? Because to be baptized and cleansed, to go through a cleansing ceremony under John the Baptist implies a certain kind of subordination. So why do they all report that? Well, the principal embarrassment would say it must, they must report it because it really happened. And they feel like they can't evade it. It's something that's publicly known. Right? So if you just take it, if you're a skeptic and you stand back, you know, you're the, the atheist in the Harvard Library, and you say, well, the early Christians probably made all this stuff up. But the fact that they had the courage, or they felt they had to, they were constrained to report this thing about John the Baptist, uh, which was a kind of embarrassment to them in a way, given their rivalry with the John the Baptist movement, shows that probably Jesus of Nazareth was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. Now you say, well, that's really perverted. I mean, you're, you're starting with the most skeptical framework to establish something, and that's right. Well, you're starting, what you're really doing is you're ending in a, in a dialogue with the most critical form of, of reason, I mean, critical reason that is refusing to submit to faith or is not interested in faith or whatever, skeptical about it, etc. And you're, you're basically starting with those principles there, not the principles talked about at the beginning, principles of scriptural revelation, magisterian tradition, but the principles of critical reason. And then you're trying to work with those principles to show, actually, you can build up a pretty dense set of high probabilities that Jesus of Nazareth in his historical context took himself to be someone of utmost historical significance. I mean just the fact that he got so just the fact that he gets baptized by John the Baptist shows he was he was present, he was participating in a movement that was eschatological. John the Baptist is baptizing to prepare for purification of Israel. Think 
the Messiah, the end of the world, something that's going to free us from Roman domination, some kind of renewal of the temple, lots of symbols floating around. Jesus of Nazareth, we can say, is very likely the center of all that. I say, you say, well, that's very modest. I mean, that's not like believing he's the second person of the Trinity. That's true. But it's establishing it's very historically likely that at least something that the New Testament says happened historically. You're already way far away from the Da Vinci Code as soon as you get that. You know, you've got Jesus as associated with eschatology. Um, in an early, early Jewish context. And that's very minimal. What I'm going to do in the next lecture is build up a case that's a lot more maximal. There's a lot of stuff like that. You can find a lot of things. So the more you study, from, even as it were, presupposing that we've got to talk with the skeptical person in ourselves, we, we, after all, who is real, I mean, the person who has skeptical, critical reason in ourselves, but also in our culture, you can actually build up a pretty strong case that... Um, yeah, Jesus had a very high self-conception. Okay. What are some of the principles we're going to use to make these kinds of arguments? These are these principles up on the board. Historical tools of rational likelihood. I mean, what are these guys, all these biblical scholars, they use principles, they don't usually tell you. You know, it's good to read a few of these books... And you start to see patterns, the same arguments. And they don't always announce to you the criteria they're using, but basically, I mean, some of them do, and I've got a list here, an unscientific list of what, I, what they usually will, will mention, in which they often employ. Withering is pretty good. He sort of tells you, I'm using the principle of embarrassment, or I'm using the principle of multiple attestation. Some of them are much more... Um, they don't tell you as much. Some of them tell you right what, what, they, what they are doing. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, these are principles used in theological exegetical reasoning, and they're really just often used in historical reasoning generally, but principally as regards to the Gospels, they've been used a great deal over the course of the last hundred years or so. The first is the principle of multiple attestation. So this is, for example, uh, when you find a saying or action from multiple sources, say the letters or the, or the various Gospels, and you can pretty much show that those different sources are not mutually dependent. So, you've got things in Mark that probably, maybe, have been carried over into Matthew or, or Luke. That's not multiple attestation, because Matthew and Luke perhaps took them from Mark, maybe. But in any case, there seems to be the same. Somebody's copying somebody. But then you've got other things that are told, two, the stories told independently in two slightly different ways. I mean, the, um, and that's, that's a sign that, that it's been transmitted by a previous tradition that's widespread. So, I mean, the classic example, or a classic example, is the institution narrative of the Eucharist. In 1 Corinthians 11, as 11 15, 11, you've got Paul talking about on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks, and, da, 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 and he's got the whole institution narrative. Well, you've got, that, you've got a different institution narrative in Mark. And yet the words of consecration are pretty much the same. They're a little bit different. There's a couple of uh, small differences. But basically, you've got... Uh, and then you've got it in Luke, and you've got it in Matthew. You basically, between those four sources, you've got two different versions of the institution narrative of the Eucharist. Which means you've got two different traditions. But they're almost... Identical, and they're very wide. They're obviously widespread because they're being told by different strands of tradition. Okay, so 
obviously Mark didn't make up the institution narrative alone. You know, it's not because like, if you got it just one time, the skeptic can say, well, maybe Mark invented the whole thing because he liked bread ceremonies or something. You know, they think of some silly idea like that. So, but in here you can say, well, no, because Paul, who probably wrote before or simultaneously already has it, the tradition, so it, it predates them. And we're already here 20 years after Jesus, so you know, you've know you got to have a tradition that precedes both of them that's already widespread and prevalent, because they're appealing to it. So we see it's something that everybody knows and that they're reporting. And so it goes back early, which means the institution narrative is very, very early. <laughs> now you can't, prove, you can't prove it happened in Christ. Although you can show all the Semitisms in it, there's all kinds of Semitic and Jewish imagery in it. And you can show it comes from an early Jewish context. You see? So you didn't prove Jesus instituted the Eucharist, but you can just show anybody who says he didn't doesn't have any grounds for it. And then it goes back to earliest, earliest Christianity. You see? So you haven't proved the faith, but you've, you've shown that there's early historic, historical belief in in the institution by Christ. I mean, I think you can actually make stronger arguments, which I'll probably try to talk to you about in the next hour about the institution area. Another good example, Raymond Brown. I don't like Raymond Brown. I'll tell you right off the bat. But, um, you know, I mean, well, I mean, the book on the Passion, he wrote a giant book, two-volume book on the Passion, which is really good. I don't like the, the thing about the infancy narratives. Um, I find it kind of impious. But everybody, Raymond Brown arouses strong passions for people. But, he does have a good argument for, if, like, if you want to take a skeptical argument about the infancy narratives of Luke and Matthew and say, well, those things didn't happen, they're obviously myths, and da 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 da. Well, I mean, he does have a good argument to show that despite all the difference between Matthew's infancy narrative and Luke's, there are a number of things they have in common. In both of them, an angel announces the name of Jesus. Uh, in both of them, uh, Jesus is conceived virginally. Um, in both of them, Jesus is born at Bethlehem. So you got a certain number of things that... And of course, the infancy narratives, well, pretty clearly aren't dependent on one another. Because Luke's story is very different than Matthew's. Matthew's story is very different than Luke's. And yet, they do have common tradition. Angelic announcement, giving the name of Jesus, that wasn't something that came from the parents, but that the angel gave them. That Jesus was conceived virginally by, virginally by a miracle, that Jesus was born at Bethlehem. Even if you just have that, that's a lot. You see, and it's got to predate both Matthew and 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 uh, and Luke because it's it's a tradition common to both of them, multiple attestation. It doesn't prove again that it happened, but it shows it goes back before each of them to some earlier primitive tradition. Um, principle of coherence. This is a question of how do various sayings or deeds of Jesus, even while quite different from one another, harmonize with each other? I mean, I say semiotically, which is say, how do the different symbols of what Jesus says or does cohere? Because, look, if you, if you take a, any historical figure, say Winston Churchill, right, who has all these wonderful stories about what the rude things, funny things he said when he had drunk a little too much, and, you know, and, and wonderful speeches he gave about standing up to totalitarian powers and all that. I mean, you can kind of, you know, you don't know if all the stories are true, but there's a kind of coherence to the different stories. He has a certain kind of character that comes clear through the various incidents about him, or Socrates, you know, Socrates does all these crazy things. Well, he's sort of, there's a sort of sort of coherence to those things. Well, so if you can find in Jesus' mission and self-articulation a kind of coherence 
between different symbols, it builds up a kind of probability that there's a certain underlying message or theme to what he was saying or doing. So that even though things are very different than one another, um, you can show... The, you can, you can, it suggests a, a plausible unifying intention or, or self-consciousness of a mission undergirding the various actions and words. A good example of this in N.T. Wright is a... N.T. Wright's one of the most important contemporary historical Jesus scholars. He's a bishop, God help him, of Durham. Um, whatever that is. But anyway, he... Um, He's written a lot of excellent material on the historical Jesus. And uh, Wright has built a lot out of the symbolic continuity between Jesus' uh, hostility to the temple. Uh, so, he's claiming the temple would be destroyed, which he seems to have done, prophesying his destruction. The overturning of the, the money changers in the temple, which I'll probably try and talk about a little bit next class, what that might mean. Prophetic actions which signify that the temple is going to cease the process of sacrifice. On the one hand, the process of sacrifice in the temple is going to stop. On the other hand, the institution of the Eucharist, which is the institution of a rite of sacrifice outside the temple, which for the mind of a Jew of his time is extremely grave, right? Because where is sacrifice prescribed? Where is sacrifice prescribed for the Jews? It's it, to take place in the temple, but where is it? All, where is it written? I mean, what, where are the dictates about what sacrifice should be and shouldn't be? Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Yeah, you know, it's the Torah, and this is a non-Torah-based sacrifice, right? The Eucharist, or is it? Right, Christ claims it is, but it, the point is, it's he's doing something extremely novel of a, a, of a radioactive. Uh, Potential offense, right? And and yet, this is coherent semiotically with the critique of the temple. So it, it could show you plausibly why you know why he was offensive, what some of the things were that were underlying his preaching and activity, and why he'd be crucified. I mean, so it's helpful as a historical explanation. It gives a, a high degree of uh, historical intelligibility to what was so controversial about his ministry and his own intentions and consciousness in its historical setting. Alright, so next is the um, principle of embarrassment. I already gave a good example of the principle of embarrassment. Let me give another one briefly, which is like Peter's denials. Right? I mean, here's everyone. Peter is the person mentioned most in the Gospels after Jesus in all the letters and Gospels. He's, I can't remember, it's like 150 times his name appears. He was clearly recognized to be the leader of the early Christian movement and an exemplary disciple of Christ. And yet, all four Gospels depict him graphically betraying Christ. Well, this is slightly embarrassing. Or the denial of Judas, you know, Judas's denial of Christ, you know. So these are principal embarrassment. It's, it's just not the kind of thing you're likely to make up if you're trying to promote your own movement. And you're, if, you're, if you're writing with a complete, just out of self-interest. And so for the skeptical, you know, from a skeptical point of view, it, it doesn't, it is not, it's not clear what motivation we could give to people for making stuff like that up. Is he knocking? class, okay?
Um, okay, the principle of similarity. We could also call this the principle of, and this is in fact, this one and the next one are probably the two most important, I think, in a way. But they're, they're all, inter- these, all these things are interrelated. The principle of similarity, we could also call the principle of cultural homogeneity or cultural likeliness, like likeness. Jesus is a first century Jew living in a time and place that have a particular shape. There's Roman occupation, the monarchy's been dissolved, the priesthood is the only functioning classical institution of Judaism. You've got the Pharisaic movement, which is different from the Sadducees, who are the, the priestly clan. Right? I mean, so there are a whole set of religious and political issues of the age. How does this affect the understanding of Jesus and his mission and self-expression? This is particularly important when you think about his eschatological consciousness. If Jesus is claiming to be in some way an eschatological Messiah figure, bringing in the end age, why is it? Why is there this sense of crisis in the larger kind of political culture of Judaism? Right? You sort of need the backdrop of the stage to understand his actions on the stage. But you also have to regulate this one with the principle of dissimilarity. I mean, if you know, the person who is, I mean, say, take, take, you know, America, what would characterize America beginning in the 21st century? Right? The supermarket. Right? This is the institution, American institution par excellence. You have all this material, uh, sensible comfort, uh, which with your capitalistic purposes, you can, you can just buy anything you want. On It's all about choice. You go in and you take whatever you want. Right? So, you know, somebody who's working at the supermarket fulfills the principle of similarity in spades. Right? But then they're also uncontroversial. I think there's a woman in Scotland who has been beatified, who was... She was a... She checked people out in the, in the supermarket in Scotland. She was apparently holy, but, you know... But, I mean, the point is... That, that's kind of that's kind of illustrating something contrary to the point I'm trying to make. But I mean, there are people who can be whole, saints, perhaps, who work as, as a checkout person. But generally speaking, historical figures are also principles, also figures of dissimilarity. They somehow challenge the culture around them, for better or worse. Right. So when Christ has sayings or actions that are not readily intelligible or meaningful to later Christian communities, but which are not readily intelligible or meaningful in the Judaism of time, of his time, how or why is this important? So, you know, sometimes Jesus says things which for the Jews of his time would have been shocking. And they're not always things that the later Christian community understood well. The principal example of this is the phrase, Son of Man. Jesus always called himself the Son of Man. Now, you don't see Paul calling him the Son of Man. You don't see the later Christian movement. It's not a title we use much in the liturgy. What does that word mean? Right, this is a big question. You, you might imagine there's a lot of ink spilt on this. Right, I'll talk about, a little bit about the Son of Man image in the next class. It turns out it comes from Daniel, probably. Daniel 7. It's an image of the Messiah. But it's not an image of the Messiah that people at the time of Jesus used. So it's as if he took a, a, a title that was cryptic. It's, it's clear he took a title that was cryptic. And he applied it to himself specifically so that he would not allow other people to interpret him so that he could interpret for, for them his own significance and not have it dictated to him by their preconceptions. Right? So it's a way of transcending their preconceptions. 
Right, the Son of Man shall do that. Well, who is the Son of Man? What's the Son of Man? It, it makes their mind relative. So there's a pedagogy involved. It makes their thinking process relative to his uh, progressive revelation of himself. So that's just one example. I mean, the institution narrative would be another one. That's very dissimilar from what most Jews said and did at the time. Lastly, the principle of causal explanation. In the end, if you're a historian, you have to try to explain the, some kind of phenomenon. There's some goal involved. And the goal, in this case, is to try to somehow understand the generation of the early Christian movement as coming out of the life and, we might call it, ministry or activity of Jesus of Nazareth. Is that, a, is that a, a story of discontinuity? I mean, is the early Christian movement teaching things a generation after Jesus, such as that he's God, that he himself would have found completely strange or alien? And if so, what's the cause? Is it because Paul made it all up? Because he had a bad dream after he ate the wrong food on his trip to Damascus? And he came up with this high Christological theory that everybody just fell into believing because he preached it with such deliriously wonderful passion. If that's not so probable, then what is probable? You see, I mean, historians have to try to get some kind of sort of narrative of where this all came from. Historians form models of explanation that amass a great deal of factual information and try to present a coherent account of how certain historical processes or events gave rise in turn to other processes or events. In other words, they try to create model, large-scale models or paradigm theories to explain historical change. Now, that, that means they're amassing huge amounts, I mean, with the New Testament, huge amounts of information from the, 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 the Judeo-Christian, the Jude, Judaic and, and Roman, Greco-Roman cultural situation to all the contingent facts and probable theories about who Herod was and Pilate and when this happened and this and that and the other and then all the different narrative um, probabilities about when was Mark written or Matthew or John or, uh, uh, and when did Paul write this and how, how should we understand the histori- his- historicity of all these various factors or indications of the gospel and then from all of that then trying to think about well, how probable was it that Jesus said or did this or that and the other and what would have meant in this context and from all of that trying to create a, a, a sort of portrait of Christ, of Jesus Nazareth in his historical context and how that, his ministry and mission led to the, the, uh, the beginnings of early Christianity it's a huge ambitious um, and there's, you know, there's only in every generation maybe you know, 20 or 30 people who really become masterful this subject and write these huge 600 page books sometimes you know multiple 600 page books like N.T. Wright like Ben Witherington like um, John Meyer and they, they basically try to get a plausible story about who Jesus was in this historical context good for them it's good you know that's fine and then, the other, and then they write books against each other and say, well, you didn't explain this, or you haven't accounted for that. And this, you know, and you've got Marxists who write these stories. You know, there's Marxists who've written this. You've got atheists who do it. And then they say, well, you didn't explain this aspect. You? And, and, and this is interesting. You know, it's constructive. I wouldn't base my life, the meaning, I wouldn't try to determine the meaning of my life based on what these guys cook up in their classroom. But, I mean, on the other hand, I, it's, it's appreciable. Well, let's just talk about some in the five minutes that remain to me some of the um, uses of this theologically 
there is what's been what's come to be called a distinction which is fundamental between what we call Christology from above and Christology from below which is our 19th century distinction that now a lot of Catholics have taken over it came I, mean, I think it was a, a Lutheran a Rischel 19th century who began using it Pannenberg 20th century Lutheran theologian made a lot of use of it um, but now it's commonplace. Casper and Rahner and um, Balthazar and Bart all use this terminology. Oh, sorry, Balthazar and um, Ratzinger. Anyway, Christology from above is rather straightforward. I mean, it's the it's the belief that effectively the gospel portrait of Jesus is trustworthy historically and conveys to us the true meaning of who Jesus was and the true significance of his life. And that then, from the Gospel, we move into the teachings of the Church, the classical councils and theology of the, of the Fathers of the Middle Ages, and the healthy, sane, modern Catholic theology, and try to uh, understand more deeply the significance of the mystery of Jesus Christ's life. Christology from above, therefore, begins, as it were, from principles given through revelation that's why they say from above you know it come they say the first principles are given to you from revelation scripture theology from below is an attempt to use the historical critical method and all this kind of argumentation we've been talking about just now to build up a, a, a portrait of Jesus in his historical context that is compatible with the catholic faith that's say compatible with the later new test with the new testament uh, teaching about Jesus. So it's an attempt to give a kind of, theologically, it's an attempt to give a story, uh, a historian's faith, so to speak, or the believer's a believer's history of Jesus. That's probably a better way to put it. It's a believer's history of Jesus. Who was Jesus of Nazareth in his historical context? How were his sayings and deeds, in fact, uh, replete with what we might call an implicit uh, high Christological significance. By high Christology, I mean how do the things. High Christology means the belief that Jesus is not only man but also God. That's supposed to low Christology, which is the belief that Jesus is a prophet but not divine. And of course, all Catholics are high, have a, hold high Christology doctrinally. But you can try and show that, sort of using what's called Christology from below that Jesus of Nazareth placed in his historical context implicitly acts and speaks in such a way as, as to suggest that he has an awareness of his own divine identity or of his divine authority. So you put Jesus in his historical context to show this Jew, this first century Jew, who is so similar in many ways to his contemporaries, is also dissimilar because it's very likely through all these principles of embarrassment and multiple attestation that he acted in such a way as to suggest the authority of the God of Israel himself that he had in himself or he partake, partook of or shared in the very authority of the God of Israel himself. He in some way identified himself with God, the God of Israel and the mission of the God of Israel the promises of the God of Israel. So you can try what's called an implicit high Christology now, ultimately, this is fine. If you do, if you practice this correctly, this so-called implicit Christology from below, you can use historical critical method apologetically, so to speak, to try to show that we can make a case that the Jesus of history said and did things that suggested a divine authority that led to the gradual Christian movement, emergence of the Christian movement, and to the kind of portraits of Christ we get in the subsequent generations where they're showing him acting this way precisely to make the point about his authority.
Now, these are all probabilistic. You know, again, we don't have chemically pure access, so it's it's a, it's an apologist's attempt to show what could have been or might have been Jesus' historical context. And so, to finish briefly, um, yes, this is just you know. It's anal- I would just say it's analogous. You can use history not identically the way you use philosophy, but similar to the way you can use philosophy. You can use philosophical arguments to show, for example, that God exists, that there's a soul. Try to argue that Christianity is not contrary to reason, but in fact, in some ways, con- consistent with the best philosophical reason. You can do the same thing with the historical Jesus. Although it's different because you're not proving things through philosophical argument based on immediate experience, but trying to demonstrate things through historical probabilities based on historical study. So, historical studies this way can help theology almost directly these three three points. First, by illustrating how the mystery of Christ unfolded and was communicated in his historical context. In other words, it helps you situate the things Jesus says and does in the Gospels in their original historical context. So it, 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 it helps you understand sort of more deeply theologically how both his adversaries and his adherents understood him in his original context. Secondly, it can try to demonstrate the historical well-foundedness of many of the historical affirmations of Scripture. So this is apologetics. Uh, It shows the teachings of Jesus only make sense in a uniquely Jewish context. So some of these things couldn't have been made up by the later communities in the Greco-Roman world. They had to come from a Jewish origin. And thirdly, it can successfully defend Catholicism's historical claims against its detractors, especially mysteries like the Eucharist or the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, It can produce alternative accounts of the historical Jesus to those of skeptics, whether they be Protestant or whether they be atheist or agnostic, uh, that are at least equally plausible, if not more historically explanatory, than those produced by historical skeptics. So in this way it can show that other alternative accounts of the historical Jesus are not rationally compelling. You don't have to believe the unbelieving account. And in fact it might be a less reasonable account than that of the historical critical uh, narrative of a believer. And so, I mean, I, I just finished by saying, you know, in terms of the kind of Dominican and Catholic tradition of faith-seeking understanding of the, and the concord of reason and faith, we should have... Um, Modesty about what reason can do with regards to historical Jesus studies. You know, just like we we have a very strong sense of the supernatural and the need for divine revelation, so we should be we should say, you know historical critical exegesis. My faith doesn't depend on having a some you know all comprehensive understanding of the historical Jesus. Reason is has modest goals and limitations in this domain. However. It also has its own dignity and integrity, and human reason can investigate historical Jesus, and can, depending on whether it's kind of cooperating with theology and faith, if it is, it can come to some non-trivial certitudes about the historical Jesus in his original context and the historicity of of Christian faith. In other words, we can't prove the faith. If we could, it wouldn't be supernatural. But we can show that the faith is rooted in a real historical event. Uh, and that our religion is historical. So we're going to look at some of that. We're gonna, now that we finished practicing. Uh, that was one hour of practicing uh, swimming on the shore. 
and then from now on we're going to actually swim. We're going to do theology and we're going to start with Jesus in his historical context in the next hour. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Amen.